Turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We'll read verses 1 through 5. And would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Judge not that you be not judged. For the judgment you pronounce, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we come before you this morning and we know we need you. We cannot worship and we cannot live without your spirit and without your word. And we pray as we look at your word today that you would guide and direct us. And for every command you give, every challenge you place upon us, we ask that you would give us the power to obey because we cannot do it without your grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning we find ourselves in week seven of an eight-part series on sin and sanctification. In the first five weeks of our time together, we looked at dealing with sin in our own lives. And last week we began to look at dealing with the sin in our neighbor's lives. We looked at Leviticus chapter 19 and saw that when God said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, he did so in the context of dealing with sin. And Pastor Jeremy made it clear that if we will love our neighbor as ourselves, then we must deal with the sin in our neighbor's lives. And that was a challenging message, wasn't it? I think it was for all of us. We can't say that we love our brother if we ignore his sin. If I walk into church this morning and I've got a little shaving cream left on my neck, you come and greet me and say, hello, so good to see you. Boy, I love Pastor Daniel. And you don't mention the shaving cream? You're mean. <laughs> That's not love. You hated me. But sin is far worse than a little shaving cream. It would actually be much more like this. I walk in and you greet me and on my sleeve you see a black widow and you say nothing. You cannot tell me that you love me if you do that. Sin is like a black widow and we know there's parts of our bodies we can't see. 
And sometimes we're careless or distracted and don't see what we can. And so love has to deal with sin. When we see it in our brother's lives, we have to deal with it. And if we don't, it is hate. But this notion of confronting, of dealing with sin, is so difficult. It is so uncomfortable. Most of us have never done this. If we have, it's because we got so frustrated or so angry, we finally snapped. And if we're willing to admit it, confrontation isn't a normal part of our lives. Even if it is a part of our lives, it is abnormal. Add to that, our culture has fed us lies. It has shackled our hands and feet. And it has told us, if you confront, you are not loving. It says, confrontation is mean. It's rude, impolite, it's unkind, it's unloving, it's ungracious. But we saw that those are lies. They're lies. The truth is, if we see the sin in our brother's lives and don't confront it, that is unkind. Pastor Jeremy made it so clear last week. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. But we have to be honest with each other. It doesn't always feel like that, does it? It doesn't feel like that when we're receiving the confrontation. And it doesn't feel like that when you know you've got to go do it. If you missed last week's message, get it. Listen to it carefully. It is foundational and so important. Pastor Jeremy served us well, showing us from Leviticus 19 that despite what we might feel, despite what it might look like, confrontation is an act of love. Refusing to confront is an act of hate. Now, even if we accept that biblical truth, if you're taking this seriously and you're thinking through the implications, you should have some questions. You should. And that's what we want to spend our time addressing this morning. What are the obstacles, what are the questions that come up regarding con con confrontation? And we want to answer those and deal with those objections so that we're able biblically to love and to confront. We want to look at those most common objections. Let's begin by dealing or by defining what confrontation is. What is confrontation? Speaking plainly with someone, and this is in your notes, speaking plainly with someone about their sin. Out of concern for their ultimate good and love for the holiness of God. Confrontation is speaking plainly with someone about their sin out of concern for their ultimate good and love for the holiness of God. And before we jump into the objections, I just want to make a few clarifications up front so there's not misunderstanding. First, when we're dealing with confrontation, our confrontation is based on God's word, 
not ourselves. It's not based on our own opinion. It's based on God's word. So we're not talking about, well, I don't like that jacket that you're wearing, so I'm going to go confront you. That's not what we're dealing with. We're talking about biblical sin. Also, before we do this, we have to first deal with our own sin. We cannot deal effectively with someone else's sin if we're infected with the same thing. And so we have to deal with our own sin first. Also, we come in humility, recognizing our own past sin. Is, do you, have you ever found it easier to confront someone else's sin if you used to struggle with it? And you can identify with them. I know how hard this is. I'm guilty of it too. And we have to come in that sense of humility, recognizing we are not guiltless. And we have to deal with the sin that is in our lives presently. If we know of sin in our own lives and we're not dealing with it, we have no business going to confront another. Also, we go being ready to forgive. Confrontation is not about winning an argument. It's not about being right. It's not about proving your point. It's about restoring them. And so when you go to confront, you're ready on the spot to forgive and to restore. It's not about personal anger or personal vengeance. It's about restoring them. And so we go ready to forgive. And then one last clarification When we're dealing with confrontation, biblically speaking, it is only commanded of those who are believers. That that might be a big question. How do I deal with my coworker or how do I deal with my unbelieving family member? The, The Bible deals with those things and will give you guidance, but when we're dealing with confrontation this morning and as we've dealt with it last week, we're talking about dealing with the sin in lives of fellow believers, okay? So with that, let's look at the first objection. And we're going to start in Matthew 7, the passage that we read. Christ said not to judge, and this confrontation is so judgmental. You feel that? It is so judgmental. But look at Matthew chapter 7, and we'll see if that's accurate. On the surface, it looks like he is forbidding all judgment. Judge not. It sounds like that, doesn't it? Don't judge. Therefore, all judging is wrong. That understanding doesn't fit with the whole passage. It won't make it through verse 5. Christ doesn't forbid judgment. He directs it. He directs it. Christ does not forbid judgment. He directs it. Judge not that you may not be judged. Judge not that you be not judged. For, he's going to clarify what he means, with the judgment you pronounce, and that statement implies what? You will pronounce judgment. With the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. So what Christ is doing is he's warning us, make sure that your judgment is righteous. Because it's the judgment you're going to be judged with. He's not forbidding judgment. He's directing it. He's warning us, make sure your judgment is right. And then he goes on in verse 3. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log in yours? You hypocrite. You hypocrite. 
But look at what he says at the end. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll realize you never have to confront. <laughs> nope. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, have you ever had a speck in your eye? Ever had a piece of sand in your eye? Feel good? No big deal, right? Because it's not a log. No, specks hurt. <laughs> specks irritate. You cannot work with your eyes if you've got specks in them. So we need each other to take specks out of each other's eyes. The point is not, oh, it's a small thing. No, it's sin. A small thing, a small sin, there is no such thing, but a small sin in our lives is a big deal. It's a big deal. We need help with it. So Christ doesn't forbid judgment. He directs it, that our judgment, number two, should be biblical, not hypocritical. This is critical. When we come to confront our brother's sin, it must be biblical in nature. It's not about my preferences. It's not about my opinions. It's not about my feelings or my offenses. The offense must be with God or confrontation is not required. When we focus on the sins of others and act in a judgmental or self-righteous spirit, do you think we're going to be good doctors? If we come in self-righteousness, do you think that we're going to be very helpful? No. So what Christ is saying is, deal with your own sin, and then you will see clearly so that you can help your brother. But if you go without dealing with your own sin, then you make yourself useless. Now, what makes judgment self-righteous? What def defines self-righteous judgment from righteous judgment? It, it, and this is helpful to note. It's not the frequency of the judgment. It is not the frequency, and it's not the confidence of your judgment or the strength of your judgment. What makes judgment self-righteous is the basis for your judgment. If the basis of your judgment is your own righteousness, what kind of judgment is it? Self-righteous, hypocritical. Is that going to do any good? If I judge you by me, is that going to be helpful? No, it will be worthless. If at best, it will probably be destructive. But if the judgment, the basis of the judgment is God's word, then does it matter if you have to do it five times in one day? Is it self-righteous? No, it's based on the righteousness of God. So what makes a judgment self-righteous is not frequency or the strength of the judgment. What makes it self-righteous is its basis. Is it based on you and your opinions or is it based on God's word? Now, let me quote for you John 7, 24. He says there, do not, Christ, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So there he actually commands us to judge. But what do we judge with? Not appearances, not our faulty, fallen, frail human judgment, but we judge based on his word. Then it is a judgment that is right. So in reality, loving confrontation isn't judgmental because it's not we who are judging. 
It is God's word that is judging. And that allows us to go to confront the sin in our brother's life without self-righteousness, without hypocrisy, with humility, because we recognize I'm guilty too. I'm not coming to you as one who has never done that. I can't believe you did that. No, I'm guilty too. I've been redeemed too. And so when I point out your sin, it is not because I think I'm better than you. It's because I care about you and don't want that black widow to get up to your neck. Second objection. Second objection. My Bible only says to confront sin against you. Matthew chapter 18, and let me just read that verse for you. You can turn there if you'd like. Matthew chapter 18 Verse 15, and I, I'm sad to say ESV, I'm not real happy with in this verse. <laughs> if you have the NAS, uh, you'll probably see it's different. But look at verse 15, and we'll talk through this briefly. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Well, it says against you. Between you and him alone. If your brother sins against you, go and confront. So my Bible says, if your brother sins against you, well, he hasn't sinned against me. He was sinning against someone else. So I'm not going to confront. That's a common objection. He hasn't done anything to me, so why should I confront him? Now, let me, and I'm going to be brief. If you're interested in this, there's a whole lot more information. But briefly, we're not entirely sure that against you belongs in the text, okay? There's a whole bunch of early manuscripts that don't have it. But then there's even more manuscripts that do have it. So it's a bit of a tricky situation. Does it belong there or not? We're not sure. Not entirely sure. It's fairly balanced on both sides. I'm unhappy with the ESV, not because they say against you. I'm unhappy because they don't put in a note. <laughs> they should have a little note there that says, Many manuscripts do not contain it. Um, but let's, let's just talk through this briefly. Look at verse 21. It says, Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? Now that verse is unquestionable. So as you're thinking through a scribe adding in against you, well, verse 21 makes it parallel. Not only that, but in the Greek, there is some consonants in the text so that against you sounds like the ending of sin. So it kind of rhymes. It would be easy for someone to accidentally add that in or take it out. It's easy to understand. Now, which would you think is easier to obey? If your brother sins, go and confront. Or if your brother sins against you, go and confront. Which would be easier? Definitely against you. That would be easier because that limits a lot of sin I don't have to deal with. Well, unfortunately, that's a good reason for a scribe to leave it out. Scribes aren't perfect and they sometimes do things like that. But let me ask another question. If it wasn't in there, or if it was in there, why would a scribe take it out? There would be no reason. So in the end, I think... It does not belong there, but I'm not willing to die for that. I could be wrong. 
It may be there. So let's deal with it, okay? Well, Luke chapter 17, verse 3, Christ says, If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. No question in that text. We all know what it says. If your brother sins, rebuke him. So are you limited? You can only confront sin that's against you? Well, the answer, no, because Luke 17, 3 says, If he sins, I need to rebuke him, whether or not it's against me. Now, second point here, not sure if it's there, but let's move on with the assumption that it is. In some way, our, quote, private sins are against others. My private sin is in some way against others. There's no such thing as a private sin. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.5, Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. There's a sense in which when I sin, I am sinning against all of you. Why is that true? Well, think about 1 Corinthians 5. How much leaven does it take to leaven the whole lump? Only a little. And if I'm the one bringing leaven into the lump, who have I sinned against? Just myself? No, I'm sinning against the whole lump. Not only that, but consider 1 Corinthians 12 and Paul's discussion of the body. If the hand should say, I am not a foot, therefore if I impale myself on a nail, I'm only sinning against the hand. Does that make sense? No. If the hand does something to itself, who is it by definition also hurting? The whole body. And you know when your hand hurts, you hurt. (laughs) Your whole body does. Everything hurts. And so there is a sense in which any sin that we commit is against one another. Therefore, we don't want to limit Matthew 18 to only sins directly against me. Third, and this is significant, we're told elsewhere to confront sin that is not against you. And I've given you, believe it or not, a filtered list of verses. That's a filtered list of verses that give you commands to deal with the sin in the lives of other people. And none of them specifies that the sin has to be against you. Let's just look at a couple. Uh, First, Galatians 2 Paul says he went and confronted Peter to his face. But if you, if you remember what was going on, Peter's sin was not against Paul. So there we have a clear example. Paul was confronting Peter even though it was not against Paul. Then in Galatians 6.1, Paul says, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. The transgression doesn't have to be against you. If the person's caught, that is trapped, not found out, but caught in it, snagged in it, then those who are spiritual, without logs in their eyes, should go and restore them. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul commands the whole church, all of you, admonish the idol. Now, how on earth does my laziness affect you? Well, if we're members of one another, it does. 
And so Paul says to the Thessalonians, admonish, all of you, admonish the idle, the lazy. It doesn't have to be a sin against you. And then we will look at Hebrews 12 together. Turn there. And this one I have found very informative. You've heard the passage before, I'm sure. But because it's a long sentence, as the author of Hebrew is known to do, you might lose the point. Hebrews 12, 15. <clears throat> Hebrews 12, verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. We'll stop there. Verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral, is connected back to verse 15. You all see to it that no one is sexually immoral. Who does that command come to then? Only the, the spouse or the parent of the one who's sexually immoral? No, who does it come to? All of us. And so he's saying here in verse 15, we must see to it that no one among us be sexually immoral or unholy. Sexual immorality is not singled out. There are many responsibilities that we have to one another to deal with our sin. So we can't excuse ourselves from confronting sin because it's not against us. Does that help? That's a big objection in our minds. But it wasn't against me, so I'm off the hook. No, that won't work. Objection number three. Objection number three. Doesn't the Bible say that we're supposed to cover sin? And isn't this the opposite of covering? So I'm not going to confront because I know a passage that says cover sin, so I'm not going to do this. I'm going to obey this passage, not this one. If you ever find yourself choosing between passages, it means you don't understand one or both of them because God does not contradict himself. 1 Peter chapter 4, I'll quote the verse, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, if that's all you had, you might think, okay, loving one another means covering sin. So when I see my spouse sin, or I see my co-worker sin, or I see another member in the body sin, I'm just going to cover it up. Does, does that fit with everything else we know? Uh-uh, it doesn't. Peter is quoting one of two possible passages, and we'll get to those in a minute. But just think about this for a second. We are supposed to cover sin. Peter says, cover it. The question is, what does that mean, and when do we do it? Proverbs 10, 12, many believe is the verse he's quoting, says this, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Now, if what Peter means is, if you see someone sin, cover it up. If that's what Peter means, then when he quotes Proverbs 10, which sin should we do that with? 
Proverbs 10, 12 says, love covers all offenses. If that's the command, then it would be wrong to ever confront any sin. That won't work because that directly contradicts the other verses. We're commanded to cover all offenses, not some. So another meaning has to be implied. And let me just suggest to you, this is number two, sin is only covered after it has been repented of. Once the sin has been confessed and dealt with, then every sin we are to cover. Can you cover every sin that's been repented of? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not going to bring it up anymore. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to keep reminding them of it. I'm going to cover it. I'm not going to spread a rumor and gossip about it. I'm going to keep it covered. But it's the sin that's been repented of that is covered. Look at Psalm chapter 32. This, well, I can quote it for you. Uh, I can read it for you. You're so familiar with it. David says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Amen, right? That's us. If we have been forgiven by Christ, if we have put our faith in him, we say with David, Blessed is the one whose transgressions have been forgiven and whose sin is covered. I am all about covering sin because I would be dead if God had not done it for me. But look at what he says in verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave my iniquity. So when the Bible says we're to cover sin, we are. But that's not unconfessed, unrepented of sin. Because when does David say this? Only after Nathan confronts him, and then he falls on his face and says, how blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. So we cover sin after it has been dealt with. But until it's been dealt with, if we try to cover it, it's like a, an infected wound. Covering up infected wounds doesn't help. It makes it worse. Objection number four. We can't possibly confront every sin. <laughs> and if, you, if you were listening to Pastor Jeremy last week, you probably were thinking, wait, if this is true, what all we're ever going to do in this church is confront each other. Not so. Not so. Because we don't confront suspected sins. We confront known sins. We confront known sins not suspected sins. The truth is, our knowledge is so limited that we do not know for sure that a person has sinned that often. We don't. What we do have is suspicions. We see somebody talk to his wife in a certain way or treat another person in a certain way, and we assume guilty. He's sinned. What a bad husband. What a bad man. We think that in our minds, but the truth is our knowledge is limited. We only have limited insight into what a person does. We don't know their previous actions. We don't know their subsequent actions. We don't. We're limited. Uh, Dr. Stuart Scott, one of our professors at 
the master seminary, he's now at Southern Seminary, told a great story that illustrates the point. He had new neighbors uh, move in nearby, and he went over to meet the neighbors, and he met the wife. The wife was there, and the husband wasn't. And um, as he was talking to her, he noticed that she had bruises on her arms. And they were, it looked like hand marks, and they were bruises. And he said, what happened? Where did you get those? And she said, oh, that's my husband. He does that. And she put all the blame on the husband. Now, as Dr. Scott tells the story, he says he really had to get control of his spirit because he was ready to go and, you know, deal with this guy because he was so agitated. But he controlled his spirit and went to him and asked him, hey, you know, I saw that your wife had bruises and she said you were responsible for it. And he said, well, did she tell you what or why I did that? No, she said, or, uh, the husband said, well, she had come at me with two steak knives in her hands. And in self-defense, I had reached up and grabbed her arms to protect myself from getting stabbed. And in the process of holding her back, I bruised her. Well, that was quite a different story than Dr. Scott was expecting. And we have to allow for the possibility. We don't know all the facts. We don't know what's going on all the time. We're limited in our knowledge. So even when it really, really looks like someone's sin, ask yourself, do you know for sure that they have? So what do we, what do, we do if we're left with just some suspicions? Biblically, 1 Corinthians 13 comes into play. Love hopes all things. So if you're looking at a situation, our obligation to one another is that we hope all things, that we work hard at figuring out, okay, there must be another explanation. I can assume this happened. I can assume that happened. There's got to be a way that it works out. But that doesn't always work because sometimes even when we're hoping all things, we can't get past the fact that we really, really think it was wrong. And if that's the case, then you go to your brother. But listen, there's a big difference between that approach to your brother and the approach where you know for sure that they sinned. The approach might be to ask some clarifying questions. It might be coming in a posture of weakness and just saying, I feel like there's probably an explanation and I just can't get it out of my mind. And I'm sorry, will you help me understand what's going on? And then listen to their explanation. And then you may be very glad that you went and asked instead of accused. But if you begin to harbor bitterness in your heart, remember what Leviticus 19 says. Do not harbor bitterness against your brother in your heart, nor go about as a gossip among the people. But you shall reason frankly with your brother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so what God is telling us to do is if... If we find ourselves bitter in our hearts and we start to get agitated and you don't want to sit next to that person in church and that kind of thing's happening, okay, it's time to go and talk to them. And it may not be confrontation, it may be questioning, but you've got to deal with it or you're hating your brother. Second, uh, we confront sin, not preferences or matter of conscience. So we don't confront suspicions 
We confront sin. Second, we confront sin, not preferences or matter of conscience. Some of you may believe that Sunday is a day of rest, and you don't want to do work on Sunday. And so you see somebody going and mowing their lawn on Sunday, and you think, oh, they're sinning. You're going to have a hard time finding a verse in the Bible that says you can't mow your lawn on Sunday. Now, if we're in Israel, then we have a Sabbath, but guess what day of the week that is? Saturday. Whoops. I worked on Saturday so I could rest on Sunday, so I guess I'm guilty. Uh, No, there's not a verse in the Bible that says that. If you believe that, great, do it. Obey that. Follow your conscience. But you don't go and confront someone else who doesn't have the same conviction. But if the Bible spells out you cannot do that, then it's not a preference. So we confront sin, not preferences. There's a great discussion in Romans 19 I'd encourage you to look at, uh, but we're going to skip that for time's sake here. Let me bring up one other thing I think is, is helpful. Here in Iowa, and I love this, being on time matters. I, I came from <clears throat> a place where time did not matter. A nine o'clock service started anywhere from 9.15 to 9.30. No problem. But here in Iowa, it matters. But think about this. Is being on time a sin or not being on time a sin? Now, I hope you say something like, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And you said you were going to be on time and you weren't. So you're, all right, that's fair enough, okay? But what was your yes when you said, I'll be there at 8 o'clock? Technically, your yes was, I will be there at 8 o'clock. Would you confront someone if they showed up at 8.01? You're late. What's wrong with you, you sinner? I don't think so. If if we started at 8.01, wouldn't we we all be okay with it? In fact, I think we probably did start at 8.01 this morning. I'm sorry, 9.01. Thank you. Thank you. That's great. See, I had shaving cream. You told me about it. I appreciate that. So, 9.01, would you confront them? No, you wouldn't. 9.30, would you confront them? They show up? Probably, right? Okay, but if they show up at 9 o'clock, 9.01, have they sinned? Have they sinned? Have they failed to let their yes be yes or their no be no? Well, think about this. If you showed up at 8.59, would you be mad? No. In fact, you'd feel good about yourself, wouldn't you? But the truth is, you didn't say you'd be here at 7.59. 859. I've got eight. It was a dinner illustration. Uh, If they showed up at 859, you would think, good job, way to go, you fulfilled your word. But the truth is their word wasn't 859, it was nine. My point is, we have an understanding. When I say I'll be here at eight or nine, In our culture, we mean something. In Iowa, we mean that time or 15 minutes early. But in other cultures, it doesn't mean that at all. So you don't want to assume that a person is sinning and breaking their word just because of a cultural issue. We confront the sin. If we did confront someone about being on time, our discussion would be about keeping your word, about being a faithful steward, not about showing up a minute or two late. All right, objection number five. This is a quick one. 
and important. We'll end with this. I already know they won't listen to me. This, I think, is probably the one that we feel most often, and it's probably the one that stops us from confronting more than anything else. I'm guilty of it, absolutely. I think we all are guilty of it. We think, I know they're not going to listen. That person is so stubborn, or they're so argumentative, it's not going to do any good, I'll just keep it to myself. But God is the one who grants repentance, not me. God grants repentance, not me. And if God chooses to grant repentance to that stubborn, argumentative, bullheaded guy, guess what? He's going to repent. He may do it. You don't know that he won't. And don't assume that he can't. Two, if you choose not to confront sin, or I, if I choose not to confront sin because I judge they won't listen, and I use that word deliberately, I know it's awkward. If I choose not to confront sin because I judge they won't listen, then I have chosen to hate them in my heart. Remember what Matthew 7 said, for with the judgment you judge others, you will be judged. Can you imagine if everyone around you assumed you would never listen? Can you imagine how much they would have to hate you to all judge? You're not going to listen. I know you. You're an argumentative, proud man. You're never going to listen to me. If we know of sin in our brother's life and we are tempted to think they won't hear me, they will not repent, remember God is the one who grants repentance, not me. And if I don't confront them, it is an act of hate toward them. I can go and I can confront them. And God may grant them repentance and they may listen to me and they say, thank you. Thank you for telling me this. Or they may yell at you and a couple days later come back and apologize and tell you you were right. But the point is, we have an obligation to one another. The results of the confrontation don't determine whether or not you've done the right thing. They may respond sinfully the question is, should I, ought I go and confront them? And I want to leave you with, with this. When we go to confront the sin in our brothers' lives, we are doing so because we love them and we care about them. Now, your question should be, what if they don't listen? What if I go and they don't listen? And Matthew 18 answers that. And Jeff, next week, is going to deal a little bit with that. So what do we do next if they will not listen? Let's pray. God, we are, we are guilty, every one of us, of seeing sin and turning away. 
And I pray, Lord, that you would grant us forgiveness for that and that you would help us to change. That we would be a body of believers, not that goes about nitpicking the faults of other people or the insufficiencies of their character, but a group of people that is bold enough to talk plainly with one another about sin that is evident in our lives. May we be loving enough to warn them of the danger, the poison, the hazard of the sin that we see so that your body might be purified, that we might be a pure and spotless bride to the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. You're dismissed.